Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Amy Myers-Jaffe, Director of the Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab at New York University's School of Professional Studies. I'm very pleased to be standing in for our regular host, Ed Crooks, who's traveling. It's a busy month for the Energy Gang, too. We've got some very special extra episodes coming up for you in the next few weeks. I'll be joining you live during Climate Week in New York City from NYU with a great panel on the future of U.S. climate policy. The panel will feature Anna Unruh-Cohen, Senior Director for Clean Energy, Infrastructure, and the National Environmental Policy Act at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. We'll also have Elizabeth Gore, Senior Vice President of the Environmental Defense Fund. And then, in addition, transmission and permitting expert Rob Bramlich, founder and president of Grid Strategies, LLC. Hit subscribe right now so you don't miss it. Ed will be back on September 26, bringing you a special edition of The Energy Gang, recorded in person at Wood Mackenzie's annual hydrogen conference in London. On the show today, direct air capture and carbon sequestration. Should the U.S. government really be investing billions of dollars in this technology? Can CCS play a role in decarbonizing hard-to-abate sectors? To explore these questions and more, I'm very pleased to welcome Robbie Orvis back to the show. Robbie is Senior Director of Modeling and Analysis at the climate think tank, Energy Innovation. Hi, Amy. Great to see you. And it's also a pleasure to welcome back Emily Gruber, who is an Associate Professor of Sustainable Energy Policy at the Keough School of Global Affairs at University of Notre Dame. Thanks for having me. So before I start our discussion, the professor and me... Uh, wants to sort of give you a little background information on DAC technology. So forgive me for a minute while I expound, because there are some things I think we need to know uh, before we launch into our discussion. So there's been a lot happening in the DAC and CCS space. The U.S. Department of Energy announced in late August it was going to provide $1.2 billion in funding for two direct air capture DAC facility hubs. Just for our listeners who are not familiar with direct air capture technology, it uses either a chemical media, such as a liquid solvent or a solid sorbent, or a physical process involving filters to remove CO2 directly from the atmosphere. That is different, say, than carbon capture technology, which is used to capture CO2 right at the emissions point source, like at a power plant or a steel plant. We're going to talk about CCS in a minute. That's another area that the DOE will be supporting for demonstration projects. But first, a little bit about the two projects that DOE has agreed to fund. Project number one is going to be put together by science innovator Battelle with technical partners Climeworks and Heirloom. It'll be located in Louisiana's Calcaso Parish. Project two is in South Texas. It'll be led by 1.5 a subsidiary of Occidental Petroleum, one of the U.S. largest shale producers. They'll be working together with Bill Gates's Carbon Engineering and Worley. Interesting, that plant will be powered by solar energy. Each of these DAC facilities will collect 1 million metric tons of CO2 a year and store it. By the way, that's 250 times bigger than the existing 18 DAC facilities that are operating in the United States, Canada, and Europe. Now, DAC 
technology is very controversial. Uh, Some environmentalists have sharply criticized the Biden administration for providing financial support for DAC technologies. They argue that the technology is expensive and unproven. In addition, there are also fears that this DAC technology could wind up as a means by the oil and gas industry to basically greenlight them to continue to emit greenhouse gases. Some scientists say DAC technologies will actually be critically important if we overshoot emissions out to 2050. But the question is, how real are they? How viable are they? Is this something that's going to work? Big questions ahead. Emily, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that comes up a lot in this conversation is this tension between people saying, you know, we absolutely need them for offsets versus we don't necessarily need them at all. Some form of carbon dioxide removal is required if we're aiming for net zero emissions as opposed to zero emissions. But I think what we see for now is still a real question of, like you're saying, can they exist at a scale that is reasonable for some of the kinds of numbers that we're seeing? I think that it is actually really important to continue to emphasize that even though these are commercial scale demonstrations, they are still demonstrations. The goal is still at this point to basically test whether they work, how they work, what they look like. And I think really remembering that and not really seeing these as an existing mature industry that is ready to start selling credits in particular is a really important way to think about the demonstration projects in particular. I think also in general, when we talk about DAC, thinking about not just does it exist, but how much are we going to need is a real question. And really thinking very carefully about what the minimum amount of CDR that we might be able to rely on is going to be really important because we don't know how successful these projects are going to be. Like you say, they conceptually work. We've seen them demonstrated at pretty small scale, but we don't know how much is going to be available. My position is that probably a lot less than some of the models suggest is available is actually going to be possible to do, but probably enough to get to net zero as long as we're very, very careful to include CDR as a component of an overall decarbonization strategy. Does DOE have a plan? Do they have a plan going forward as the industry starts to commercialize? You know, what are the guardrails? Right. No, it's a really good question. DOE is not a regulator in this context. And I think that's actually a really important point. Like they were tasked with actually dispersing the money for these demonstration projects, but ultimately they are not a regulator. So a lot of the question about what actually happens falls partially to DOE for the demonstration projects. They are able to put some guardrails onto that money to say, basically, you need to hit particular um, targets while we're actually still funding you. But once the funding is dispersed, once they've hit those guardrails associated with the project itself, the regulatory environment starts to look a lot different. So in terms of storage, that's generally falling under EPA's purview, particularly around well integrity and those types of things for underground geologic storage. But there's really no pressure and no regulatory framework for identifying whether direct air capture with storage is actually creating carbon removals. DAX is one of those things that I like to refer to as a CDR-capable technology. So there are ways that you can use direct air capture with geologic storage to permanently sequester CO2 that originated in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere, but not all DAC results in net life cycle removals necessarily. If you power it with natural gas, if you have well integrity issues and whatever, and the CO2 leaks out, there are ways that you can do DACs and not actually have removals or have many, many fewer removals that you see. And we don't have a regulatory apparatus to enforce that. Unlike, say, the hydrogen credits, um, all of the CO2 storage stuff that we look at is not based on life cycle emissions. It's just based on storage. Well, very Interesting. So, Robbie, let's let's get your uh, view here. You know, you're a, a elite modeler. 
so what say you? Uh, can we get to net zero without DAC? And, you know, what's your view? Yeah, I, well, I like that elite modeler. I might have to add that to uh, my business card. But for me, I look at the kind of what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says and what um, the different modeling results uh, for the scenarios out to the future say we're going to need. And so just for folks who aren't familiar with the IPCC report, um, they have a couple of different types of scenarios that limit warming to one and a half degrees. There's something called overshoot and then something called no overshoot. And overshoot means we can go past 1.5, but then come back to it by 2100 by removing carbon from the atmosphere. And no overshoot means we can't do that. Um, overshoot is a little bit you know, easier in quotes to hit because it lets you make up for going over the target in the short term through specifically direct air capture and other technologies. But what that means is that we're going to have to remove carbon and a lot of it from the atmosphere at large scale, especially you know after 2060 or so. And that's after we basically eliminate CO2 emissions. So in the scenario that hits one and a half degrees and allows for overshoot, the median amount of direct air capture is more than 200 million metric tons a year by 2050. But that grows a lot. It gets to 700 by 2060 and more than 2000 around 2070 and 6000 by 2090. So you know, there's a lot of variation across the models, but I think one of the key takeaways is here is we're going to need direct air capture to be able to stay within one and a half and even really two degrees. So I, I agree with Emily. It's a really important point. Um, I think that the amount that the models deploy is probably on the high end. And so there's this tension between knowing that we need direct air capture to be able to, you know, maintain warming that's that's limited to one and a half or two degrees, um, but also knowing that we can't just completely rely on it. We still have to get to close to zero CO2 or all the way to zero CO2. And so I think, you know, these projects are really about demonstrating the kind of proof of concept of the technology and that it can be deployed, but then we will have to be very smart about how we allocate capital in the future towards these technologies and the trade-offs between, say, investing in direct air capture and other types of emissions mitigation technologies. So I'm going to ask Emily sort of a sciencey engineering one last question. You know, is there a Moore's law to the DAC technology? Like, could the amount it's capturing today be super small compared to where it would be at a capture in 2050 or is not that kind of technology? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. You know, I never want to say that it's totally impossible that we come up with something that we don't see coming, but in general, no. And I think one of the really big things that's very different about direct air capture and carbon capture in general from a lot of the other technologies that we talk about in emissions mitigation spaces like wind and solar and those types of things, taking a very dilute substance, in this case CO2, out of the air or out of a flue gas stream. So maybe you're talking, in the case of the air, about 0.04% of it is CO2. The thing you're trying to get in flue gases, it might be as high as 15 or 20%, sometimes even higher than that, but those are not really separations issues. You're going to end up actually needing to invest quite a lot of energy to overcome the fact that these things are well mixed. You can kind of think about it, like I'm sure people have tried to do the experiment where you mix something into a glass of water, like Kool-Aid packet or whatever, and then now try to get the Kool-Aid powder back out. It's a really hard thing. Thing to do because they want to stay mixed essentially. And so that thermodynamic limit, at least as we perceive of it in terms of separations, is actually really significant and takes a lot of energy. The ways that people talk about doing this that might be less energy intensive and therefore maybe a little bit 
more capable of reaching some sort of massive cost decline. Sorry, to back up there, the reason that that matters from a Moore's law perspective or whatever is because you can't really overcome that thermodynamic limits. You're always going to have to pay for energy going into it. With something like enhanced weathering or a variety of different chemical reactions where you take advantage of some sort of chemistry that actually wants to hold on to that CO2, processes are generally slower unless you heat them up, in which case you're still using a lot of energy. But hypothetically, you could get to something that's a lot less energy intensive. You still, at least the way that we think about it now, end up with quite a lot of energy inputs to those processes because you have to crush up the rocks to make them actually expose those minerals to the atmosphere to capture the CO2. So it actually takes a lot of energy to crush rocks as well. But there are ways to do this that don't necessarily rely on kind of a, an energy input separation process necessarily. That said, the ones that we're talking about for direct air capture all need an energy input, which fundamentally limits the amount of cost decline and that sort of thing that you're actually able to do. So thermodynamic laws, unfortunately, in this case, uh, are probably going to be more important than something like a Moore's law. I'm now just going to comment for the young listeners to the energy gang. Okay. Note that there's a lot of science courses that you're, you know, if you're in high school or college, you're thinking you don't want to take. But if you want to be in this field, you can tell from this discussion, you need that background. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's, you know, talk about another problem that DAX tends to have, and that's NIMBY, right? So we have these local communities around Calcaso Parish and Texas. They're arguing that they shouldn't be forced to house these big DAC projects. Uh, and they're citing environmental justice arguments. They say they're already overburdened communities because they have already suffered negative impacts from nearby fossil fuel plants. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm, you know, trying to put a positive spin is saying, hey, listen, uh, these hubs are part of the Bidenomics best plan to create good, high paying jobs for these communities and that training and retooling is going to really make those communities thrive. But, you know, let's let's ask the elephant in the room. I mean, is this the same as putting in utility scale renewables in the same kind of location or a manufacturing plant? What about, you know, that CO2 pipeline that ruptured in Mississippi a little while back and uh, caused mass poisoning of 45 people who temporarily didn't get enough oxygen uh, in their lungs? Uh, are we going to see more objection to carbon collection technologies because of the fear of accident? Yeah, I think I can jump in there. I really would push back on the characterization of what we're seeing in the Gulf Coast about DAC and a lot of the other carbon management approaches as NIMBYism. This is one of those places where the environmental justice burdens are very, very real. This is a region of the country known as Cancer Alley um, for reasons that probably come through in its name, but has been heavily, heavily subjected to contamination from refineries, petrochemical processing, oil and gas extraction, et cetera, and tends to be also extremely burdened by climate impacts in the form of hurricanes, things like this all while facing a very long history of racist policies. So it's a particularly black community in many of these cases. And people are, I think, justifiably really concerned about the prospect of increased industrialization, particularly increased industrialization that's potentially associated with the prolongation of some of these fossil industries. So I think the tenor of this is very different from, you know, we don't want to look at a wind turbine. I also would probably push back on the idea that even that is NIMBYism. A lot of people are expressing pretty legitimate concerns about projects that can be managed. But in this environmental justice conversation, though, the fact that these first projects are going into the Gulf Coast is a real concern to me, particularly. It's been a very, very long road and a very long 
uh, history of people explaining exactly why they don't want to be the guinea pigs for these projects. They are some of the first ones, and they are in contexts that, as you mentioned at the top of the show, are very looped in with the existing oil and gas industries. Like an oil company is running one of these projects. And so I think that the concerns about what this means for industrialization, the concerns about the fact that prior industrial histories have resulted in really significant harms and haven't been addressed, raises real, real questions about why these projects ended up in the Gulf and why that was something that even under the auspices of, say, the Justice 40 program and a lot of conversations about trying to benefit disadvantaged communities through these projects, how they ended up in the Gulf Coast, I think, is a, a real question to ask. I, I agree with Emily. I think um, these are voices that have not been heard for too long. And um, with this, we're seeing more of more perpetuation of kind of the same past practices. So I, I completely agree with everything Emily just said. So one of the interesting points that you're making, Emily, here is it's not just that we're setting up a new industrial complex uh, in these regions, but we're setting up an industrial complex that will extend the life potentially of the fossil fuel uh, facilities in the same regions. So that brings me around to thinking about what Occidental Petroleum CEO Vicky Haloub uh, said on Bloomberg's Green Zero podcast uh, last year. Uh, she was talking about Oxy's strategy and she talked about this concept of net zero oil, as she called it, which she defined, and I'm going to read her exact words where more CO2 is injected into a reservoir to produce the oil than what the oil generated will emit when it is used. So she acknowledged that she's seeing interest in DAX, you know, more to sequester collected carbon and, and generate an offset credit, right? So not necessarily for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, but when she shared her views, um, she said, uh, ultimately, I believe putting CO2 into a saline reservoir is a waste of a valuable product, and it's something we should not do on a large-scale basis. It's missing an opportunity because I, meaning she, Vicky, feel like using CO2 and enhanced oil recovery sequesters the CO2. It accomplishes what we need to do. It sequesters the CO2 ultimately, and it generates the net zero carbon oil. And that's what the world needs. So, Robbie, Emily, what do you say to this? Is she missing the original IPCC point about the whole role of negative emissions? Clearly, she's not thinking about her DAC investments as a last way to correct the hard-to-abate sectors. So should that matter to the Biden administration? You know, there, it comes back to this tension, I'll just say at the start, which is that we are talking about an industry that is as close to the starting line as any other industry. And so there is a need to build pilot projects and demonstration projects to help deploy that technology early on so we can get it to a point where it can be commercialized in the long run, um, given what all of the modeling shows we're going to need to meet a one and a half degree target. Now that said, um, the framing shared is just simply not aligned with what the IPCC reporting says and the modeling outcomes uh, for the IPCC reports on on what's needed to stay within one and a half or two degrees of warming. If you look at those same scenarios I was describing earlier, they show a dramatic decline in demand for oil through 2100. So again, in those same scenarios, the Median reduction in 2050 for oil relative to today is 57%, and that's 82% by 2070 and 90% by 
by 2100. Even the fifth percentile, you know, the nearly the most optimistic case for oil demand in a one and a half degree future, still has a 70% reduction in oil demand relative to today by 2100. And those are all scenarios where we can overshoot the target and come back down. So we are, we're given a little bit more breathing room. So the bottom line is that if you look at any modeling of a one and a half degree future and even a two degree future, there's a huge decline in demand for oil. Uh, you know, and the models kind of are showing around 90% in 2100. So uh, no, I don't think that saying direct air capture gives license and oil to operate, you know, under some regime that that meets one and a half degrees is aligned at all with what the modeling and the science says. At the same time, uh, we do need early stage investment and demonstration projects. So I think we can both look at the investment and hope that it will demonstrate the viability of the technology and potentially bring down some of those costs, early stage costs, while also acknowledging that the framing that this is somehow giving oil the oil industry a license to operate for the next 80 years is not at all aligned with with what this the modeling and analysis says. So Emily, you think this, you know, people keep citing this interview. Maybe she'll take it back in a future interview. I mean, do you think it's going to set back these demonstration projects if they're successful? You think that people understand there's a you know broader application to the technology? I think it already has said back this project, honestly. And what's interesting, people always bring up that particular interview because it's so clear. But I've been in a number of meetings where people say these kinds of things, like even in writing, um, and they're not quite as widely publicized necessarily. But this is not an unusual take from the oil industry, I think. it's You see it with coal as well, actually, for some CCS projects. Like People talk about these technologies being ways to extend lifespans of fossil infrastructure. This is particularly interesting in the context of the US. Like Robbie was just citing some numbers about how quickly we need to pull some of these demand values down. That's globally. In the US, arguably, we should be doing it faster for a variety of reasons. And so there's really, I think, no space for really trying to invest in demonstrations and learning how to do this in contexts that are fundamentally tied to the perpetuation of the fossil industry. One of the things that I get really concerned about with the DAC hubs in particular is like we were talking about a minute ago, we're still learning how to do this. And these are really intended to teach us if we're investing particularly in learning how to do something that we don't think is going to be the way this should go permanently, that's a huge waste of resources in a lot of ways. It's maybe possible that we know how to do direct air capture that's powered by natural gas and is ultimately being used for oil extraction. If we get really good at that, that doesn't necessarily help us also learn how to do it in a way that's powered by geothermal heat and clean electricity and is permanently sequestered. These are different strategies. Maybe there's some learning to go there, but as we think about scale and direction, this is not a direction that's necessarily the path dependency that we want to be encouraging as we develop these technologies. I think in general, as we think about basically what this looks like, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, do we need CDR at all? Again, I think it's physically impossible to hit net zero rather than zero without some kind of CDR, just mathematically. So we do want some CDR, but I think that as we talk about projects that are going in, whether people are willing to host them, how people feel about them, 
it really, really matters what those projects are for. And I think that it's eminently reasonable for people to be a lot more concerned about a project that even if it personally or it specifically, not to uh, to personize DAC projects, I guess, but um, even if that project specifically is not being used for enhanced oil recovery or using natural gas inputs or whatever, if the claim that the owners are making is this is teaching us how to do that on other projects, you probably feel really differently about hosting that project, making the sacrifices that it takes to host those projects, et cetera, than if you're making an argument that this is part of a massive decarbonization vision that involves a lot of mitigation and is really focused on climate justice outcomes. They're just very, very different. And I think sometimes we overfocus on how people react to projects as opposed to how we react or how people react to overall decarbonization strategies and the why of the project, I think, gets lost in a lot of these engagement conversations. Okay, well, you know, uh, let's turn our attention to the other uh, one of the other carbon management technologies that also has raised some similar public ire. The Biden administration is going to be pushing ahead with several point source CCS projects. Uh, We had a little bit of a flurry uh, last week. Uh, Equinor announced it's going to be joining Chevron and Talus Energy. Uh, in the Bayou Bend carbon storage project. Um, That's after their stock took a nosedive because they're also saying they're going to have difficulty doing these offshore wind projects off the U.S. East Coast. So, you know, there's a question here about this question about whether or not money is going to one thing versus another thing and what's the benefits uh, of that shift. So, Robbie, you've done a lot of analysis on the Inflation Reduction Act incentives. What are you thinking? Does CCS make economic sense yet? Uh, How does it stand with and without the IRA incentives? Yeah, just for folks who uh, haven't been following along with with what is in the IRA for carbon capture and sequestration, there's a a modification of the prior tax credit, which is called 45Q. Um, That offers up to $85 a ton for carbon capture that is stored. Uh, There's a separate, much higher credit for direct air capture. Uh, so $85 a ton is a, is a lot of money. And for some sectors with uh, more highly concentrated streams of CO2, maybe certain industrial processes like ethanol and ammonia production and natural gas processing, you know, that could make economic sense now with the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I will mention that there's already, there is some uh, CCUS in the US already, and it tends to be primarily in those sectors already. So uh, the previous tax credit was already helping to make some of those projects economic. So, and, and maybe a couple of cement plants and maybe some hydrogen production, although that will also have to compete with the different ways in which the hydrogen tax credit offers incentives as well. But beyond those industries, really, it's still too costly in the industrial sector. Uh, there's a couple of other important considerations. You know, you can look at the tax credit and say, well, it's uh, $85 per ton and uh, you know, maybe this industry is $75 a ton to sequester the carbon, but the tax credits are only available for 12 years. And those projects tend to last at least 20 years or longer, or at least on on paper they do. So you have to be careful when you're doing the the modeling to, to make sure you're accounting for the, the limited duration of the tax credits. So, you know, looking at all of that and some modeling from the Department of Energy and a prior report from the National Petroleum Council, which is very widely cited, in terms of estimating costs of carbon capture in the industrial sector, it looks like something on the order of 125 to 150 million metric tons of CO2 uh, might be under that cost threshold. You know, and that's assuming you can get the the permitting done. Uh, not to tie everything back to permitting, but 
that's assuming you can get the permitting done and identify the pipelines and storage facilities. So it's definitely helpful for some of those sectors and builds on some of the sectors where we've already seen some CCS or CCUS be deployed in the U.S., but I don't think that the incentives on their own are going to, you know, cause some huge amount of, of CCUS growth. It's going to transform the economy or anything. Um, and, th- and the last thing I'll just say is, you know, some additional demand side policies, for example, um, there's an initiative right now to try and get automakers to sign on for clean steel. More of those types of things could be helpful also in helping to cover some of these costs and ensure that if some of these industries and facilities make the investment that they have a dedicated off taker for their product, even if it's a little bit more expensive. But by and large, you know, we should see some incremental CCS deployment from the IRA, but it's not going to you know, transform the manufacturing sector fundamentally. So, Emily, let's talk about hard to abate. I recently did an article for The Wall Street Journal discussing the hard to abate sector and how there might be technologies coming down the road that might be a better way of doing it than um, electrification. So that could be new fuels, could be uh, CCS, et cetera. So do you think, you know, Robbie's saying the economics of these incentives don't really apply across the whole potential of applications, what sectors do you think it makes the most sense? And uh, is the policy not calibrated to? Yeah, I don't think the policy is calibrated to it. My basic take on mitigative CCS, so carbon capture and storage that you're doing to mitigate emissions rather than capture them from the atmosphere and permanently sequester them, resulting in removal, is that it's something that we should be looking at very carefully for places where there's not really other options for mitigation, but probably it's not the winner in places where you have other options. So there's some complexity to the way that the combination of the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, and the Inflation Reduction Act interact that mean that we might see some slightly differential incentive for CCS in the power sector that I think is actually not great. Um, Basically, there are a lot of ways to cover the capital costs that then are kind of uh, supplemented by 45Q in ways that make some of those projects at least look economic on paper. But in the power sector in particular, we know that there are other ways to generate electricity that are probably more compatible with the way that we want to see the grid moving, those types of things. CCS plants in particular are very hard to turn on and off. Um, And so you end up with these big baseload systems that some people will claim baseload is actually really important. I think as we're starting to see demands shifting and as we're starting to see integration of variable renewables, having something that's very hard to turn on and off is actually not all that helpful. But so we may see some some pushes, I think, within the power sector. All that said, though, the way that the incentives are structured is very focused around maximizing deployment. And I think that one of the things that's really challenging about 45Q in particular is that it's fundamentally a production tax credit for CO2 that you're sequestering. It's not based on net climate benefit. It's just basically, here's an amount of money for an amount of CO2 that you put underground. Or uh, as Robbie alluded to, there are a couple of other conditions where you can get different payments. But basically, it's just based on the amount of CO2 that you're producing. That's really challenging because it doesn't account for the fact that you might be needing to invest a lot of greenhouse gases in order to do that capture. As we talked about earlier, this is an energy intensive process, those types of things. And so there's not a life cycle balance on it. And you're fundamentally incentivizing 
the kinds of operations that have the ability to produce a lot of CO2 and actually to produce CO2 at higher concentrations that are cheaper to remove from these flue gas streams for those thermodynamic reasons that we talked about. Those are the groups and types of industries that actually benefit the most from this. So like a coal plant actually is probably pretty well incentivized. A cement plant is actually incentivized to not... Uh, move their fuel sources away from fossil because using fossil fuel plus their uh, process emissions actually results in higher concentrations that are easier to separate, those types of things. The incentive structures, in summary, I think are pretty bad if you're trying to use this as a climate strategy. All that said, my basic position is that it is a useful thing to look at where you don't have other alternatives. Right now, to me, that basically looks like cement, although we are seeing some really exciting things coming out of silicate chemistry that might allow for cement production without process emissions. But most other things, you can conceive of alternative ways to decarbonize them that don't rely on CCS and are probably... Uh, longer term, more what we want to see is kind of a new investment in industry. I will shut up in a second, but I think the one other point here that I think is really important is that a lot of the CCS projects that we talk about in the United States, and I want to be clear, this is a US focused point that maybe applies in some other like long term industrialized societies as well. We're looking at industries that have been around for a while. So like steel, cement, some chemical production, et cetera. And a lot of these facilities are very old. If you're talking about putting a billion dollar investment to build like a CCS plant on the back end of some of these facilities, and you have the alternative instead to build a new facility, maybe on the same site, if you want to be managing brownfield that is using newer technologies, that might actually be helpful for you anyway in revitalizing those industries and really pushing them toward a way that's more structurally decarbonized. So in conclusion, I think there's some place for it in places where we don't have alternatives. The structures that we have are not good, though. Oh, my. Oh my, I, I'm 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 like I'm like CCS confused now, Robbie. As you weigh in, yeah, let's talk about the EPA because the EPA also has this new rule one 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 section one 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 that might also be promoting CCS as a choice for the power sector. Yeah, so I just I wanted to just piggyback on one thing Emily said, um, which is a little beyond just the industrial sector, but the. The way in which the credit um, is structured, which Emily alluded to, is kind of to incentivize, you know, capturing the most carbon possible. We have to remember, too, that for a lot of these technologies, there are other emissions that are produced when the CO2 is produced, especially ones like particulate matter and SOx and NOx, which which impact human health. And if we have a credit that um, is just incentivizing the most CO2 to be captured, that also means it's incentivizing greater emissions of those other sources and there's a penalty to the efficiency of the plant. So they have to burn even more fossil fuels per megawatt hour per ton of electricity produced. So it's another area where the design of the credit could be problematic. But to bring it back to to this next topic, so the Environmental Protection Agency released some new rules this summer that take aim at CO2 from existing power plants. Any listeners will probably remember the Clean Power Plan, which is, I guess this is the next, uh, the second or third iteration of that. And I think the main thing to call out is that in the the new proposed rules, the EPA has basically said there are uh, the primary technology that can be used to uh, to remove emissions or to mitigate emissions in the power sector from coal and gas plants is carbon capture and sequestration. Um, and have pointed to the incentives in the IRA, as well as some of the posturing by utilities around the viability of, of carbon captured sequestration as a mitigation option. Um, and a lot of instances is, is a way to um, delay investment in renewables. For example, there's 
There's lots of evidence of utilities saying they're just going to do CCS in a few years and they don't want to invest in renewables now. Um, and so the EPA rule, you know, within the bounds of what the Supreme Court ruled on in West Virginia v. EPA, where it basically said, you know, look, you you can set rules, CO2 rules for power plants, but it has to be what's called inside the fence line. It has to be on the site. You can't just say, you know, this utility can shift to renewables. And so the EPA and the proposed rule has gone ahead and done that. And, and where they've landed on is CCS as one of the two, the other being uh, fuel blending with hydrogen technologies that is available to help the power sector decarbonize. Uh, and so, you know, that's raised some concerns, you know, many of them valid around, you know, what is the role for CCS? And as Emily pointed out, if we have other technologies, why are we, why are we investing in, in CCS um, or proposing investing in CCS? But I think there's this tension that, the EPA's hands are somewhat tied given the prior Supreme Court ruling, and they're trying to craft a rule that meets the requirements of the Supreme Court under the Clean Air Act and builds on the IRA incentives, even though uh, in many cases it's going to be more cost effective to simply build renewables or to retire existing fossil fuel facilities and replace them with renewables. Uh, so there's definitely a tension around kind of what that means for the rule and how it's designed and what the outcome for the power sector might be in the long run. Yeah. And to kind of jump on that, I think the the way that EPA structured the 111 proposed rulemaking around coal is actually quite a bit different from the way that they structured it around gas. So for coal, the CCS option basically kicks in if you're going to be operating your plant beyond 2040. I've done some analysis that suggests there aren't that many plants that you would expect to be running that long anyway. It's, we have a very old fleet of coal in the United States. but So the other options that EPA puts up are basically retire, retire a little bit later, but only run at 20% capacity factor until you retire, switch to co-firing 40% natural gas, and then retire. Or if you're not going to retire, then you have to install CCS. And that, I think, gives plants a lot of opportunity to do these within the fence line things that really do incentivize those retirements that, again, based on the age of the plants are probably something they should have been thinking about anyway. And under many state laws at this point that have actual legal targets for emissions reductions and so forth are kind of implied requirements under state law anyway. On the gas side, I think Robbie's point is good that they're they're kind of pushing toward this CCS or hydrogen pathway because there's a lot of question about what really happens to the gas industry. But really notably, under the proposed rulemaking, this doesn't apply to very many plants at all. And because they also play a little bit with capacity factor on the natural gas side, probably in practice, most plants could just sort of reshuffle which ones are producing how much electricity and avoid uh, regulation entirely because the rules really only apply to plants over a specific size that are running a specific amount. So by just turning down your plant and maybe turning up a plant somewhere else, which again, comes with all these questions about other emissions, et cetera, you can basically evade the regulation entirely on the gas side, which is also something uh, that we will see how it changes as the rule moves towards finalization. Oh, my. That's another oh, my on the policy side. So we're we're deep in the weeds here of corrections that need to be made uh, by the Biden administration to all these policies. Well, Unfortunately, we could probably go on forever about that topic, but uh, we're kind of getting to the end of time here for the show. So I, I need to ask you now uh, for your free Electra. Robbie, you go first. Okay. I thought I would just mention that uh, we recently released, we at Being Energy Innovation recently released a new report that looked at EV leasing uh, and the cost of leasing 
and purchasing different types of cars. So we looked at um, 14 comparisons of different types of EV models. So we picked models that had a very comparable gasoline equivalent. Uh, We looked in all 50 states and we kind of looked at what the results look like in terms of how affordable it is to, to purchase or lease an EV or a gasoline vehicle. And the results were really interesting. So with one exception, which was the Ford F-150 Lightning and one state, Hawaii, uh, leasing an EV was the cheapest option in every state we looked at for anyone who's looking to get into a new car. We saw savings of up to three or $4,000 per year when you're doing that. And what we looked at is the total cost uh, of leasing or total cost of financing. So that actually looks at you know, what do you pay monthly for leasing? What are the difference in fuel costs and in maintenance costs, insurance costs, taxes, and so on? And we did the same thing on the financing side, right? So a lot of the other studies out there, they might look at total cost of ownership over the entirety of a vehicle's lifetime. But for most folks who are going out and looking at getting in a new car, they kind of care like, what's my monthly bill going to be every month? And so we really tried to frame it that way. And so uh, the results kind of surprised us on the leasing side, just how affordable it was. And There's a few reasons for that. One is there's an incentive in the IRA, the commercial vehicle incentive, but it applies to leased vehicles and it doesn't require that the vehicles meet the same strict uh, mineral and battery requirements for purchased vehicles. It is tied to the relative cost difference for vehicles. So we, we expect that incentive to kind of fade away over time as EVs become cheaper. But today, especially with high interest rates and, you know, more limited supply of EVs on the market, uh, that is that is making a big difference. And then, of course, uh, as we all know, interest rates have gone up a lot in the last year. And so that makes financing any vehicle a lot more expensive than it was a year ago. And so those things and then, you know, it's just interesting to also see how a year ago there was a real bottleneck on EV supply. And now actually that's that's really mitigating a lot and there's a lot more EV supply. Um, So all of those things together kind of produce this very interesting finding that, you know, for folks looking to get into a new car, leasing an EV is far and away the cheapest option. If you were looking to own, to finance to own, it, uh, it's you know competitive with gasoline vehicles. It kind of just depends on the state and the other incentives out there. So if you're interested, take a look. It's on our website at energyinnovation.org. Let us know what you think or if you have any questions. Well, I will say when I went out to get my EV, uh, I did lease it uh, and there were some advantages and I was shocked, sticker shocked, at what big cars go for today. I mean, it is a six-figure expedition to go out and try to buy a Suburban today. I mean, I years ago, you could get a Suburban for $30,000. So not surprising. Uh, your results, not surprising. Emily, how about you? What's your free electron? Uh, I'm going to be the guy that stays on the same topic of the show, actually. But I think one of the things that I've been paying a little bit of attention to recently is that there was an environmental assessment that came out for one of the big potential CCS demos that we may or may not find out pretty soon about whether it's going to be funded that was basically looking at the greenhouse gas balance of carbon capture on this particular power plant. And the life cycle analysis that they did to basically look at whether you're putting more greenhouse gases into the project than you're actually able to mitigate through the project was poorly done to an extent that really raises a lot of questions about how much 
we're going to be able to rely on like really competent LCA to be thinking about the effectiveness of a bunch of these tax credits. So like we were talking about in the show, 45Q, the carbon capture credit is not really set up to deal with some of these greenhouse gas balance questions, but 45V, the hydrogen one actually is. And there's a lot of discussion lately about really needing to be very clear about what some of these greenhouse gas balances are to determine whether projects are good for the climate or not. So the fact that this particular environmental assessment was so far off the mark in terms of the LCA, I think is a bad sign, um, but also one where there's still an opportunity to comment. So this is the Project Tundra draft EA comments due September 19th, if the show comes out before that, if anyone wants to take a look. Okay. Well, my free electron is sort of in the same uh, area, but in a diff- from a different angle. So uh, this week, a new poll came out that showed that uh, a clear majority of Americans have been affected by some kind of climate event or disaster, heat wave, flood, fire, so so forth. And uh, that recall brought me to my a, a recent train ride I had where some older person uh, sat down next to me on a train and struck up a conversation. Um, and when I said I was a professor and that I work, she asked, what do you, you know, what do you teach about? And I mentioned climate change. Uh, this person explained to me that there was no climate change. And so I asked them with just like, you know, horror, like, I don't understand. Do you not watch television? Like, what do you what goes through your mind when you see all these catastrophes worldwide making the news? And then um, this person kind of like backed down and said, well, she she's not saying that there's no climate change. She's just saying that it's just not true that we can do anything about it. And so that led to a totally different conversation, but that made me think of another news thing that happened recently, which is that, Emily, you mentioned this whole definition about hydrogen. So there is this unclarity, you know, not only, I think, in the public's mind, but among, you know, policymakers, because now we're starting to say you have to learn life cycle analysis to be able to legislate, um, you know, uh, uh, energy policy. And so you have different groups literally took out full page ads in the Washington Post and the New York Times about hydrogen definitions. And the word additionality appeared in um, both of these giant advertisements. And you say to yourself, how is the public going to start like impacting policy if I'm having to learn these terms, additionality, and I'm having to go down the rabbit hole of uh, life cycle analysis. And so, uh, but I, but I did get a lot of fan mail for my Wall Street Journal article on hard to abate. And that shocked me because I was thinking hard to abate would be an article that no one's going to read. They're just going to see that it's about, you know, industrial and aviation emissions, and they're just going to like put that article aside. So maybe the public has more absorptive capacity to some of these technical questions. I'm not sure. But anyway, unfortunately, uh, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to you, Robbie. Thanks, Amy. Many thanks to you, Emily. Thank you. And many thanks to our producers, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.